Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Illinois lawmakers recently debated a bill that would include all youth under 21 in juvenile court. Washington State considered a similar bill this year, extending the age to 25. These bills and others reflect a nationwide effort to shrink the scope of the U.S. juvenile criminal system, which continues to incarcerate the most children per capita of any country, even with rates plummeting from high points in the 1980s and 90s. In 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court bowed to international legal pressure and ended mandatory life without parole for juveniles. San Francisco created the first young adult court in 2015 for people aged 18 to 25 charged of any crime, and Vermont passed a similar law in 2016, expanding juvenile sentencing for nonviolent crimes to anyone under 21. In juvenile and young adult courts, rehabilitation is emphasized, in contrast to the retributive justice which tends to be emphasized in adult incarceration. In 2017, North Carolina followed suit and raised the age to 18. Previously, North Carolina children older than 16 were tried as adults. An increasing number of states are considering similar legislation in light of recent court cases, research about brain development, and critiques of bias in juvenile sentencing. Criticism of juvenile detention often highlights racial and other inequalities. Black children are 2.5 times more likely to be arrested and nine times more likely to be tried as adults. Hispanic and Native American children are also incarcerated at significantly higher rates. Two-thirds of youth in detention are children of color. In 2019, the United Nations released a global study on children deprived of liberty, which highlighted migrant-related detention and argued that detention of children for migration-related offenses should be prohibited under all circumstances, highlighting the physical and mental health consequences, including susceptibility to sexual abuse. Currently, approximately 20,000 migrant children seeking asylum are incarcerated in U.S. facilities. Our show this week returns to June 11th, the International Day of Solidarity with Long-Term Anarchist Prisoners. The focus of June 11th is overcoming the isolation that these long-term prisoners face, as the movements they participated in years ago give way to new struggles and new generations of radicals. The Day of Solidarity works to connect these prisoners with struggles currently underway, especially those struggles with the potential to abolish the prison system, freeing them and all prisoners. We begin with Letha, who gives us an update on Marius Mason, who, alongside most prisoners, has faced an excruciating year of isolation within the Danbury Federal Prison in Connecticut. Marius organized in Bloomington and across the Midwest for decades before being arrested for his participation in Earth Liberation Front actions. He came out as transgender while inside and has contributed solidarity statements both to the annual June 11th events around the world and to the January 22nd day of solidarity with trans prisoners. Letha shares important notes on how to keep Marius and other prisoners connected to the outside world. I'm Lisa. I live in Philadelphia and I'm a longtime supporter and friend of Marius. We were neighbors um, back in the early to mid 2000s. And we also were a part of various projects in the Cincinnati area. And when he was arrested, or shortly thereafter, I was one of the people who adopted his five cats. 
And so our relationship sort of stemmed from the neighborhood we lived in together, those projects, and then later me keeping in touch with him about his cats and their well-being. Marius has been active for decades in various projects above and below ground. And in 1999, he participated in action with several other people at Michigan State University, where he set fire to a lab that was doing research on genetically modified organisms on behalf of Monsanto. This was a earth liberation action that he did uh, among several other actions, including earth liberation actions around that same time. He was sentenced in 2009 for the Michigan State University lab fire, as well as several other actions. He was given the longest sentence of any earth liberation prisoner up to that point, which is 21 years and 10 months. So Maurice has been incarcerated at three different locations, initially for the first Roughly six months, he was at Waseka, which was a medium security facility. Uh, he had a lot more options in terms of programming that he could be a part of, uh, friendships that he forged. Later, he was moved to FMC Carswell in Texas, uh, Fort Worth. There, he was put on a unit of only 12 people, which was the former federal women's death row in the country. And many of the people that he was incarcerated with were dealing with some pretty extreme mental health crises all the time. And the programming was pretty limited. He was uh, in a facility that was completely blocked off from the outside, except for a small yard that had fencing around it and above. So for practically half his sentence, he was in a facility completely cut off from the natural world. He struggled emotionally, mentally, in every way possible while he was there. Later, he was moved out of that specific administrative unit into the general population of FMC Carswell. But he was only there for a couple of years until he has been moved to Danbury, Connecticut where he is, I guess, visually and ecologically is in a better place, but in a lot of ways, a harder situation for him because in part the pandemic, the last year he has not had a visitor. Actually, it's been more than a year. He has not had a visitor from family or friends uh, because the prison has been cut off um, from the outside. Uh, visitors, if they are allowed, it's very difficult to arrange um, and, and visits are short when Marius's family and friends are so far away. It's, it would be extremely difficult to have them come see him. And there is some more programming at Danbury and other positive things about it. He's again in a bigger facility than he was in the administrative unit at Betsy Carswell. So he's able to have better relationships but at the same time, it's a medium security facility. And so it's not that he has cells necessarily. They're just sort of half walls in a large room with various, I believe it's two to three bunk beds for each half wall space. And so he, it's pretty cramped. Um, there's not a lot of personal space or personal time. And that especially has been hard during the pandemic and scary. He's seen a lot of people become extremely ill and it's been quite a terrifying year for him at Danbury. The highlight for Danbury and why Maurice really wanted to be transferred there initially was because it's a lot closer to friends and family. Texas was really far away. And one of the huge obstacles for people visiting was that 
we would have to you know, get a hotel, rent a car, fly out there. And it, it costs thousands of dollars. You know, I think I probably spent around 500 to $600 every visit uh, when he was in Texas. And so that was really hard on his family and on his kids. And I mean, on all of us, there was a big benefit in moving to Danbury because his son um, was living in New York at the time. And I still, I believe still does. And then um, his other child is living in like the Midwest area. And so it was, it was more so drivable. It also, it, it being in Connecticut, there were a few more options for people to stay with other supporters or to you know borrow someone's car while in Fort Worth, Texas, it's just like geographically, it, everything's so spread out that it was, it was hard to find community that were willing to support us in, in seeing Marius. Yeah, so Danbury had those highlights, and that's really why we wanted to move is because he he has felt so cut off from people on the outside, from the movement, from his family, from his friends, from the news, um, from every aspect of life on the outside. And so uh, moving to Danbury, we were very hopeful that he was going to have better contact with all of us, we would be able to see him far more when before in Texas, he got maybe two visits a year. We were hoping that we would, you know, up that to maybe even once a month, we could get somebody to go out and see him in Danbury. And unfortunately, then the pandemic hit, so sort of, I guess, about what, a year after he moved. And while that first year, I think that we did do a great job, we were having, you know, sometimes more than one visit a month. And there were other benefits to it. You know, he, the climate was more what he was used to. They have a gardening program at Danbury. Um, they have classes. It's just generally a lot of things are nice about Danbury. The security isn't quite as extreme as it was in Texas. So again, visiting is a lot easier. But then the pandemic hit and he did contract COVID-19 along with many people on his unit. And his unit is again, it's it's constructed in the sort of open space. And then there's these half walls uh, that create the, I guess, like cell areas or sleeping quarters. And the half walls are the height of there's going to be there's like bunk beds within each sleeping unit. And if you are on the other side of a wall from a bunk bed on the top bunk, that means that you're practically sleeping, you know, right next to somebody on the bunk across the way. And so you're within inches of people. They were given masks sort of spotty on and off, but things would happen like in the middle of the night, if there was um, lockdown, or if there was a fight or some sort of incident, they were all hauled out of bed and told to get on the ground to lay on the ground. And so Again, that would mean that hundreds of people are crammed together on the floor within inches of each other, maybe didn't grab their mask, um, maybe didn't have a mask to begin with. It was a nightmare I and mean, it was just a recipe for disaster. They had so many cases that they moved people into different quarantined areas. And that would be um, like the visitor waiting area where I've visited Marius turned into a quarantine area. Marius actually, while he had COVID, was in that room and he, they were just on cots. And then with, again, like very little facilities, I believe the library was turned into 
a quarantined area and some of the programming rooms were turned into quarantined areas. I think even the kitchen was, now I think about it. Yeah, I think the kitchen was also turned into a quarantined area. So it's just like, you know, every space that they could possibly block off the prison created it as an area for people who had been tested positive for COVID. And then, yeah, all visits ceased. They have enabled him to make phone calls more readily and video calls. So that's really how we've been contacted each other. Or he's been contacting me the last year is that we do far more video calls and we talk on the phone far more frequently. Like all around the country, just really weird things happen. Like other people on his unit would find mail in the trash instead of being delivered to individuals. It was you know being found shoved in a corner or not giving any information, really lacking in, in the information that staff were giving about how long you're going to be quarantining and and then how um and then you know once released from quarantine are you just going to go back to general population not a lot of testing going on testing being refused when somebody was feeling sick if somebody had you know extreme symptoms uh, staff not responding until somebody practically couldn't breathe so yeah it's been a really traumatic year for marius um, and everyone on his unit certainly also, the nature of Danbury is that a lot of the people who are on his unit are only there for a max two years. And so, you know, Marius sees a lot of people come and go, and he is there, you know, he still has another decade to go. And so it's been difficult for him to forge relationships inside, but then also just knowing that they are able to serve their time unquote, and then leave while Marius just has year after year to go. There has been, and I guess I encourage people to look this up, is that Yale's School of Law has actually did a lot of work on trying to get compassionate release for those at Danbury because of the physical structure of the facility. The fact that, again, those half walls, the bunk beds right next to each other, the facilities is like not being enough for as many people who are located there. It's, you know, I believe that they share something like five stalls for over a hundred people in the bathroom. And oftentimes the bathroom's not working or it's backed up or there's like, there's sewage issues. And so all of those things being considered again, during a a health crisis, the Quinnipiac University and Yale University have both contributed a, a lot of time and energy into making sure that those who could get compassionate release um, were uh, able to get released. And so Marius has seen some people on his unit be released. They did advocate on his behalf. Marius was denied compassionate release. And that's sort of where he is now. Like I was saying before, feeling really cut off, that has been exacerbated by this year. It feels as though despite moving to Danbury and and all the reasons that he wanted to move there, he really has not been able to benefit from any of those reasons last year. Being close to family has meant nothing because uh, they can't visit him. Um, The same as friends and supporters. And so he has expressed recently this feeling that his life is prison and that he doesn't really know what's going on on the outside. He's not able to keep up with the news or with people's relationships or with friendships. And the movement, he feels like he doesn't know know, what we're doing and what we care about, um, what our passions are and and where we're putting our energy. And it's been incredibly alienating and difficult for him. He doesn't feel that he's a part of our lives. I think that people should keep in mind that Marius, a lot of the information that he gets about the outside world is from television. 
unfortunately, that is the main means of information and media that he is subjected to. And that's whatever, again, is on television. So if you watch MSNBC, that's what Maurice is forced to watch. And so he really doesn't get a lot of in-depth information or he misses a lot of things because, I mean, yeah, it's just not presented to him. And so he really likes it when receiving articles If you can send him anything that you download from the internet, even if it's a blog post or something that you can print off. I know that some websites enable you to print off their articles, others don't. Anything like that is is really helpful for him to just get a bigger perspective on the world and also to stay connected with things that he cares about, right? I mean, Maurice is in for Earth and Animal Liberation Actions. That's not something that he's going to generally hear about on the inside. And so if there is a sanctuary nearby that you really are passionate about, or you are fostering kittens, or you just got a new dog, or uh, you love to take a hike at this one forest, then yeah, Maurice would really love to hear about that because he has no access to any of that information. And those are all things that he really cared about on the outside. And he continues to care about on the inside and he wishes more than anything that he can get out and be a part of those projects again. For our final segment, we finish our conversation with Lauren Regan from the Civil Liberties Defense Center. Last week, Lauren told us about the ongoing physical and mental harassment facing long-term anarchist anti-racist prisoner Eric King and his lawsuit against the U.S. government. Here she is. So after that torture session, they basically engage in a series of what's called diesel therapy, which is when they basically ship an inmate from one prison to the next. Whenever a prisoner is new in a facility, they are vulnerable and they're at greater risk because they're the new guy and they're not part of the system or the culture. But in this case, it was even worse because as Eric arrived at each of the new facilities, he knew that the guards and the white supremacists had been alerted to his presence. And there were various types of attacks and violence that occurred. Like for instance, at one of the facilities, the prison guards, you know, basically overtly say like, you know, we know you're anti-racist. We know, you know, what's going on. And then they ask him, do you feel safe? Which is sort of a buzzword in the prison system if you say you're not safe, you go to segregation. And so Eric knew that the only response he really had to this question was to say, yes, you know, I feel safe. The guards then specifically said, well, you know, um, you know, there are the leaders of some of these white supremacist gangs want to kill you. And Eric basically didn't really have much of a response to that. And so then they said, okay, well, we'll take you back to your cell. Instead of going out the way that he came in, guards lead him through another door and into a separate locked room. And within that room is one of the leaders of one of these white supremacist gangs who then basically threatens to attack him and uh, actually does attack him and causes a bunch of injuries. There were probably no less than five or seven incidents similar to this, where correctional people purposefully place him in a cell or in a setting with a white supremacist that either threatens to kill him or attempts to kill him. 
And then in addition to that, there were also several other attacks by correctional officers on him. You know, in one instance, he is taking a shower and one of the correctional officers confronts him, searches him, even though he just came out of the shower and, you know, has barely any clothing on. The correctional officer ends up beating him with a metal detector on his feet and other places that wouldn't show bruises, basically. Um, and then at one point, uh, knocks him to the ground, Eric splits his head open, he ends up getting stitches and has a severe concussion. All of this, you know, occurring before we got on the case, but obviously was the primary reason that we knew something needed to be done immediately, or they were going to be successful in killing him. Other claims in the complaint are under the Administrative Procedures Act, which in essence is the violation of the prison rules as they were applied to Eric. And then we have some federal tort claims for the various assaults and batteries and um, the emotional abuse that he has endured, you know, since he got to this prison in 2017. You know, I think for, for myself and I think for most people, what makes it particularly hard to hear is the fact that he's alone in there, you know, that he is locked up, that he, you know, is, if he tries to defend himself, they use it as a justification to kill him, you know, or to attempt to kill him. And that is being allowed to happen under cover of the law. You know, that they, they're the ones with the weapons and the guns and the legitimacy of, um, you know, federal powers behind them. And that kind of abuse of that power, you know, and abuse of that system, we've, of course, known that this has gone on for as long as these systems have been in place. Eric is not unique in suffering this kind of torture and abuse, but, you know, you can only imagine, you know, he has a partner, he has a family, you know, those people can barely sleep at night worrying about what's going to happen to him next and knowing that like neither they or us have any ability to just walk in and save him, you know, or, or, um, you know, give him aid in any physical or tangible way. And I, I think that is what is like exceptionally frightening, you know, for people when they hear Eric's story. And, you know, and again, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, the fact that this is happening to a white anti-racist activist, you know, is bad enough. But we know that as Black and Indigenous and other people of color, you know, activists who are potentially going to go down for Black Lives Matter crimes uh, within the federal system, we know that they're going to be absolutely targeted as well. So we're going to have this like wave of political activists going into the criminal punishment system and into these structures that if we don't do something to call that out and to dismantle it, many other people are going to be subjected to this kind of violence and emotional torture. I was wondering if you had any reflections on um, the experience of representing or working with clients who are incarcerated and the sort of limitations and barriers to that? 
Well, it's been exacerbated because of COVID this last year. You know, we haven't been able to actually go to the prison and visit him in person. I'm going to be doing my first visit in over a year in June, finally, you know, because of vaccinations and stuff like that. Um, and Eric had COVID while incarcerated, um, like so many other prisoners. So it's been, you know, it's always hard to represent somebody in custody just because you don't have easy access or true attorney-client privileged privacy. Um, but this past year has just taken that to a whole new level. Literally, we have been relegated to like no more than 20-minute phone calls once a week with him which luckily, you know, for the most part, we have been able to engage in. And I think that um, even just us coming on the case and making those weekly calls and crawling up the nose of the prosecutors and the Bureau of Prisons and demanding discovery and, you know, all of the things that we've been doing um, and that his prior lawyer also did, um, you know, she was great. I think that, you know, we are seeing the correctional officers that are in contact with Eric slightly backing off. I would like to think that they see or hear us coming and they are starting to cover their asses a little more and they are being told by their supervisors and the attorneys for the Bureau of Prisons that they need to watch their asses. And even just that offers some degree of protection for Eric. And that is relieving in some, in some ways. The other thing I will say is, you know, as I mentioned, there are so few lawyers that are able to take on the thousands of federal cases that probably could be brought on behalf of inmates within the system. And it makes me sad to hear how thankful Eric is that we are helping him because he knows that there are so many other people within the facilities that he is living right now that also need help and have not been able to get any help. Um, and that, you know, that is sad because it is exactly that system and that structure that that darkness um, that allows these correctional officers and this system to perpetuate that kind of abuse. They know that because of the legal rubric that the feds created to protect themselves, that there just aren't a lot of lawyers that are gonna be willing to take them to court. And because they know that there aren't a lot of lawyers taking them to court, they think they can get away with a lot more and they have, and they will. Um, and that is kind of disgusting to me. You know, the lawsuit will be a long road. Uh, the wheels of justice, as they say, do not grind very quickly. Um, but Eric, um, his criminal trial for the assault on the correctional officer who assaulted him first um, is going to be happening in the fall it, um, because of COVID. That trial date got pushed to October, I believe. Otherwise, you know, there is like an Eric support page. I know that you know folks have fought to get him access to books and he you know every time a little window opens where they allow him to receive books a book list is put up online and people are encouraged to send him books 
um, before they take that quote unquote privilege away again in retaliation or punishment. And, you know, I think if people want to keep up on the case, um, you know, they can certainly go to our website, which is just cldc.org. We send out weekly updates, you know, as things unfold. Uh, we will certainly keep people updated. Normally, uh, the feds have 60 days from the time a lawsuit is filed to even just answer the complaint. You know, like the first thing that happens is a couple months away. So, you know, so we we think it'll probably be the end of the summer before anything interesting starts to happen in the civil case. But hopefully, now that he's a plaintiff, you know, uh, the lawsuit says Eric King versus United States of America, and he's kind of stoked about that. And we hope that that does help protect him from the violence going on within the facility that he is forced to live. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.